This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. This is another episode of our Make Remake series, and unlike our previous episodes where we're looking at an original film and a remake and seeing how they're similar and different when telling the same story, so in the past we've done stuff like uh, the recent Netflix Rebecca and the Alfred Hitchcock Rebecca, that was the most recent one. We're tackling a bit of a unique situation here. We're going to look at Orson Welles' famous debut feature, Citizen Kane, with the new David Fincher release, Mank, which is a behind-the-scenes making-of-writing movie. So this is a little bit different. It's not going to follow the same trend. And because of that, I feel like I need to bring on some new guests, some exciting guests. Now, if you listen to the show, you probably heard me talk about them before. I've been a guest on their show twice. But joining me for the first time is Sam Blakely and Hugh Dempsey from Please Watch This, coming all the way from across the Atlantic. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. A pleasure to be here, Dakota. Hello there. Call blimey. All the way. (laughs) (laughs) Governor. (laughs) So like I mentioned, uh, I was previously on your show. I was on a recent episode where we talked about the Richard Linklater film Before Sunrise. And then the first time way back in the summer, uh, you had me on to discuss the Wes Anderson movie, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And so I guess the way that works is, you know, every two appearances I have on your show, you get one on mine because there's two of you and that counts as two. That's good. That's good. I thought it was going to be about quality of show or something like that, but I I prefer the quantitative numbers game. But, uh, but I am excited. So this is, this is an interesting one. I tried to, my, my original goal with the Make Remakes was I wanted to approach two movies I hadn't seen at all. So that way I can kind of go in fresh and be able to, to you know, compare them. And because I would often find, you know, you've seen one movie and you go watch a remake of it or whatever. And you're like, oh, this, this isn't what the original was. I prefer the original. It doesn't matter whatever one you see first. Whatever was the first one you see, that's the one you usually have a stronger attachment to. And so that's why I try to do it that way. But I'm finding when I'm trying to do these newer ones, it doesn't work out. Like I'd seen the original Rebecca a bunch of times. So I brought on a guest who had never seen the original Rebecca. And, uh, and that's sort of why I approached you guys with Citizen Kane. Now, Sam, you had told me you had seen bits and pieces of it. And Hugh, I believe you had not seen this at all. So this was yeah. a first time full watch for both of you, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. And it, it, would, it would be the ideal uh, content for our show because our show is all about filling in gaps that we haven't you know classic films you haven't seen and what film is more classic than Citizen Kane really it's right up there with any other classic film you can care to mention um and yet that you're not going to mention <laughs> <laughs> but neither of us had seen it all the way through uh yeah. before so yeah absolutely it was a it was a really good opportunity to watch it it isn't enough to tell us what a man did you've got to tell us who he was So I guess then before we kind of like really get into it, I'd love to kind of maybe get just your first reactions of it. We don't really have to break the movie down, but like, did this movie live up to the hype? Was it overrated? Was it boring? I know some people, some people have trouble going back to it because they, they've just heard so much about it that it never really lives up to the hype. I guess, uh, Hugh, let, let's start with you, your, your sort of first impression thoughts of it. Oh, I thought it was amazing. Yeah, I was um, absolutely bowled over by how good it was. I was surprised, actually, at just how good it was. Um, I even said to Sam that I was annoyed that 
it'd been I was you know I'm 32 years old and I haven't I hadn't seen this film yet I should have seen this when I was like 18 or 19 or something should have seen it donkeys years ago and what about you uh, Sam I had a really mixed feeling about it I didn't love it actually um, I kind of really appreciated just how just how groundbreaking it is you know and you can tell it from a modern eye because if you see in any other black and white film it's not anything pre I don't know, the 90s. A lot of those techniques that he's using are so... Uh, they do stand out. But I think the problem for me was just that um, I kind of admired all that, but I just didn't really feel any strong emotions watching it. And uh, honestly fell asleep quite a lot during it. Um, and I just kept rewinding a couple minutes. And then I watched it again the next day and enjoyed it a lot more when I didn't... You know, when I watched it in one chunk without falling asleep at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I appreciate it, but I, I just didn't love it. Interesting. Yeah, I've definitely heard the the idea that it gets a, it's a little bit more enjoyable to watch on a second viewing. It's not like it's a, a super complicated film plot wise, but I think when you kind of you don't have to worry about oh who is this character, what's their relation to, uh, what is this story trying to tell, especially when you kind of maybe look at it a little bit as everyone's a little bit a little bit of an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can kind of just like enjoy who the characters are because it really is much more of a character piece than it is sort of a plot-heavy movie. Because at the end yeah. of the day, a whole bunch of stuff is pretty unresolved. It's more about just learning who these people were. Yeah, I think so. And, and it is, for that reason, as you say, it's, it's one to rewatch because I think it's very possible I'm quite simple. Um, you know, and <laughs> often often I won't fully appreciate a film um, for, what it, for its greatness, you know, the first time I watch it. And sometimes it takes months or years later for me to rewatch it and go what was I thinking the first time why didn't I absolutely adore it I think I mean I've been saying it's simple for years so yeah exactly and here it is finally (laughs) in in black and white (laughs) (laughs) but a film like There Will Be Blood I remember enjoying it the first time and then a couple of years later I rewatched it and thought why didn't I totally love this film immediately and it's kind of you know similar kind of film you know it's a successful it's a character portrait of of a successful person over the course of many years um maybe that's what it is it's quite you know it's quite like deep themes and and stuff that a simple man like me doesn't get the first time I'm surprised you didn't like it to be honest I thought enough explosions I thought you were really I thought you were I thought you were really going to enjoy it to be frank yeah so did I so did I um, I mean Orson Welles is just he's magnetic you know he's he he's the definition of a film star isn't he There's I mean, very I, I think I'd only seen him in Third Man before, and he, you know, half the film he's been talked about, but he doesn't show up. And we talked about this actually when you were on the show, Dakota. And and he's on screen, and you go, okay, yeah, that I get it now. He's a that is a movie star. That yeah, he's like the the dictionary definition, isn't he? I'm, I was trying to think, and I was asking both, like, can you think of other actors or actresses who kind of fall into that? Sort of, they're so magnetic on screen. Present, you know, their screen presence is just magnetic. Because in this in this film, you kind of see him, don't you? Like in the newsreel at the beginning, and they have like little snippets from him here and there, and you see like an interview that he gives when he's coming from off the boat. But then you don't really get to see a an actual part. It's only maybe like. 10, 15, 20 minutes in until he's in the newsroom and that's when you first kind of really see the character actually interact with people normally. I mean, I think a young Brando has that. Yeah, Brando was the first Mm -hmm. person I thought of. But it helps that Brando is so hot. (laughs) He is so stunningly good looking (laughs) 
And Orson Welles, he's really handsome, but in an odd-looking way. He looks like a bulldog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very jowly, like jowly he, even when he's got a jawline. <laughs> he could have played a young Winston Churchill, couldn't he? In oh, film. the guy from American, <laughs> the American Dad. <laughs> <laughs> he could have played a cartoon character, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, Brando was first came to mind when I thought, like, you know, when you think of, like, Apocalypse Now and all those, like, he's barely in the film, is he? But he's... Uh, He's always referred to, and then when he comes in, he makes a big impact. Yeah, it's about uh, seven hours before he arrives. He's gone after three minutes, and you go, oh, yeah, that's that Brando film. <laughs> yeah, uh, Brando's a good, any, uh, good example. Any other completely magnetic actors for you, Dakota? Uh, it, it's a little bit tough, because like he definitely has a this weird charm to him where you don't quite trust him, whereas, you know, you look at, you, you sort of run through your list of, of who you think is a magnetic actor and it's usually because they're charming in a positive way yeah. whereas he's a little bit has a bit of an off-putting charm which really works for a character like Charles Foster Kane where you can never really can tell exactly what his allegiances are mm-hmm. and where he sort of is going one way or another is he going to stab you in the back or is he going to be the best friend you've ever had <laughs> or maybe both at the same time I mean you can have act you can have actors who are very charming and you know on screen but you know, you don't trust him in real life. Look at Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he's maybe another one I could put in that list. You know, these uber charismatic actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. It's, um, it's, interesting, it's interesting as well you say about you don't know whether you can trust him because he's really that sort of person who, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into all the controversy and stories about his authorship and his and his you know, how honest the person he was. Those people who can schmooze and tell a story and you you kind of, you you listen to it and you, you're entertained by it, but you only half believe it because you know these person, these people live to mythologize themselves. Mm. There's the physicist Richard Feynman who's a bit like that. He tells these great stories and it's so interesting, but then you hear from other people, well, it didn't really happen like that. And he was so obsessed with, you know, mythologizing his own life and, and really refining these stories. And Hugh, you mentioned Winston Churchill. Have, have you either of you seen... Um, Orson Welles uh, schmoozing about Winston Churchill and telling a story about Winston Churchill. No. It, it's really wonderful. I, 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 I won't like, relay the whole thing. You, it, on YouTube, if you look for Orson Welles schmoozes Winston Churchill, schmoozes about Winston Churchill, it just tells a great, great story about kind of his friendship with Winston Churchill. I, I'd highly recommend there's it. The, well, I mean, with Churchill, there's obviously the great line that he said, history will favour me very well because I shall write them. <laughs> yeah. That's something he said. Um, and yeah, he won a Nobel prize in literature for uh, I think mm. his autobiography or something I could be wrong there but he definitely won one that's what's on the five pound note not, not prime minister <laughs> and war leader Nobel prize laureate yeah, yeah. which I always think is really funny bit weird <laughs> rewriting of history now speaking now speaking of Citizen Kane I, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about his character Charles Foster Kane and you know I, I kind of alluded to earlier where you don't know if he's going to stab you in the back or, or be your best friend sort of thing how do you sort of look at his character? Because at the end of the day, you, you kind of watch him and and there's quite a few similarities I would see with some of the, you know, the populist uh, politicians going on in the world right now, whether it's, you know, it's someone like Trump or Boris Johnson or something like that. But at the same time, he also has these ideals of, you know, making sure that the poor person never goes hungry yeah. and all this sort of stuff, which does not align with these sort of, you know, conservative populism mm-hmm. politics at all. But, it, you know, definitely sort of see a template for these larger than life politicians where you, you can't really trust what they're saying and what the actions will actually be. 
Yeah, I think my favourite more recent example is Tommy Carcetti in The Wire. I don't know if you're a fan of The Wire. Mm, but, yes. And, you know, and yes, he's, yes, yes. he's someone whose ideals you believe in, and he seems like this ambitious, idealistic young man, but then you know that he's trying to cheat on his wife and you suspect that really it's just about actually just getting it to become the mayor so he can eventually become president or something like that. You you know, you see him behind the curtain and he seems to be talking idealistically with his campaign staff, but you kind of don't trust him all the way. Yeah, so that, that was something interesting that I really sort of picked up on this watch where I found myself really not believing what he was saying. Mm, yeah. Because, you know, the one thing that a lot of politicians don't really understand is this idea of the, the working class struggle. And then the ones that do sort of come up with that, you, they eventually have it sort of beaten out of them by the <laughs> system, basically, you know, the very Tommy Carcetti set, sort of yeah, way. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I could see if Kane, who, who runs for governor, ends up losing. If he wins, I could see by the time the second term rolls around that he's up for re-election, he completely abandons all principles he has because, you know, we watch it with his newspaper. It starts out very uh, earnestly intentioned of wanting to report real stories that the rest of the media is ignoring. And then he, you know, essentially just turns into a version of The Sun where it's a, a gossip rag. Yeah, and, and like pretty quickly as well. You know, it's not like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not like the old man becomes the old Rupert Murdoch. He's, he's a pretty young version of Rupert Murdoch being awful and Rupert murdoch from the from mm-hmm. the very early. That's almost a template for Rupert Murdoch's career in some ways. <laughs> for me, I think it's just a film, or he's a character that the film portrays a character that you see the corruption of his idealistic ways. Do you think he's idealistic to start with, or do you think that's more of a more of the image? I almost feel like he's idealistic to fight back against his guardian, too. Mm, yeah, true. Yeah, he's not he's not too happy, is he? But yeah, he just kind of gets slowly corrupted by idealism, really, doesn't he? And him trying to be one thing, but ultimately he's not able to be this thing that he thinks he is and compromises, I guess. Well, because he's so arrogant about, uh, you know, I can, I can afford to lose a million a year for the next, oh, 60 years. And then yeah. actually it doesn't, you know, it can run out and you, you do have to rebuild. Yeah, he's... Um... Yeah, because that's like that scene, isn't he, when he's signing over some stuff, isn't he, with uh, is it Bernstein? Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, with with his guardian. Yeah. Yeah. It it almost reminds you of, like every once in a while you'll see like a, a tweet or something about like how if you know starting in the ze- year zero you made five thousand dollars a day up until today you'd still have less money than Jeff Bezos has made <laughs> yeah. in one day or something like that something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's an element of uh, Wolf of Wall Streetness about this, you know, and, and how charming he is to crowd. I found it odd, actually, just how raucous the laughter was at every single thing he said when he was around his kind of uh, newspaper buddies and, and those kind, you know, when he's sort of schmoozing at those kind of parties. Every line, you know, he talks about, um, you know, they've been building statues for 2,000 years. I've only been buying for five. It's a good line, but then he follows it <laughs> with something much less interesting and they all start, they all fall apart laughing even further. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I quite liked the character at the start of the film. You know, I, I, I thought he was, you know, I liked his idealism. I liked his, you know, you see him breaking, doing um, um, work with like antitrust stuff, trying to break that up, which was something that was um, big at the big turn of the last century. Um, maybe not so much his advocacy for uh, the Spanish War, but, you know, that's just... That's just part of the uh, the film, isn't it? That's just is that sort of his patriotism is 
comes through, you know, like you said, this um, this film was originally, you know, titled The American rather than Citizen Kane, which I think Citizen Kane is a much better title, personally. Now, moving over a little bit to, to talk about Mank, which is David Fincher's new movie that is about the writing of it and how it sort of purports that Herman Mankiewicz was, you know, one of the key figures behind the film's success. How did that work as a movie for you? Because I look at it, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the sort of fight between who is the actual author of this movie and how much did each of these two people have control over the narrative and everything. And, and I, I feel like this sort of swings in the complete opposite direction of, of whatever the, the mythology behind Orson Welles is in that Herman Mankiewicz was the true author and architect of this movie. And so I, I, I liked the movie, but at the same time, I feel like it didn't allow for any sort of middle ground or ambiguity. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it is, it is the story of it. And funnily enough, we, we recently in our show did the film anonymous, which is kind of suggesting that Shakespeare wasn't the author of Shakespeare, but it's not saying, Oh, maybe this, maybe that it's just saying definitely he wasn't. And and you're right. This, this film is, is 100% saying awesome. Wells is a credit taking psychopathic stealing yeah (laughs) yeah and 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 you know it's a it's a funny one where somebody is so genuinely talented because you see him on screen you know the acting is so good and he directed it but yeah the writership it's an odd one i genuinely didn't know anything about the story as well which was quite a nice uh, even having seen citizen kane i didn't really know what mank was about until i watched it and um it was at least just an interesting bit of gossip drama really rather than changing my opinion on the film yeah i suppose it comes down to that they characters that uh, citizen kane is sort of loosely based around are real people so there's there's always going to be a story behind the story if that makes sense because what what was the inspiration for for what Citizen Kane was about and why did Mankiewicz come to believe these things about the people he was portraying and like the film goes to great lengths to go oh um, uh, I think it's the the female lead in it he's like oh, oh I you know I'm trying you know this is what people she's like oh, people are saying oh you know people think it's her and uh, is it Bette Davis? Alexander. No Bette, is it Bette Davis? Marion Davis. Marion Davis, thank you. Oh, I see that. Yeah, Amanda like, yeah, Amanda Siegfried's character. They're like, oh well, you know, they'll they'll say that it's her, and 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 he's actually, well, he's basically having to say, no, it's not her. It's what people think of her, or what people think she's like, or behaves and things like this. So I thought that was uh, quite interesting. It'd be interesting to, because obviously, to a to a current audience, we we don't make those links when we see Citizen Kane unless you've heard these characters before. You're not. They're not as famous through time as a Rockefeller or I can't think of many other equivalents. Like uh, um, a JP Morgan or um, mm. uh, Andrew Can- yeah. Carnegie or somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, like media barons. Yeah, we don't really, yeah, I don't really know any American media barons, say from like, other than like the late 20th century, like your Ted Turners and people like that. Do you know any? I think that they didn't do a, a, also a good enough job of really painting a picture of who William Randolph Hearst is. Yeah. So that's the character that Kane is based on. Yeah. And I was really excited to see what they would do with that. And Charles Dance is a terrific actor who most people will probably recognize from, from Game of Thrones in recent years. 
Uh, but he was actually in, in David Fincher's first movie, Alien 3. Was he? So it was a nice little <laughs> throwback to that. Yeah, he plays the uh, So if you, if you like listen to the last episode, we talked about him there. Yeah. Mm, yes, I think he you'll does. find he's most famous for his role in Last Action Hero. <laughs> yeah, he's got that, that glass eye. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> Have you not seen it? Love that oh, film. Love classic. That. Oh. It's really good. Yeah. I'll get you on for that something. Yeah, really, really yeah. underrated classic. Yeah, it's uh, very... Um, yeah, he does what Donald Trump says he was going to do, <laughs> or Donald Trump says he could do. Yeah, I've just shot a man, <laughs> and he's waiting for the police to come. He's like waiting with his, with his like he gets a he gets his uh, watch out <laughs> to see how long it takes the police to respond, and they don't but come. He, he, he's on screen in uh, in Mank for so little time. You're right, Dakota. You know it was was a, it was disappointing because you don't I see mean, much of Wells and you don't see much of the King. Um, yeah, I mean, you could argue that the, the one of the points that both films make is, oh well, how can you sum up a man's life in two hours? You know, Mank mm. makes that says that very much himself, and maybe that, yeah, the portrayal of why Mank doesn't like him doesn't really come across, other than that he just thinks he's a bit superficial, and that he basically rigged an election for um, was it for the Senate seat or so? I don't. What were they watch? Which election were they even running for? Was it for the Senate or for that? The governor. For the for governor. Yeah, that that wasn't completely clear, but it was up against Upton Sinclair, who is the yeah. you know the famous muckraking journalist who who wrote the book uh, Oil, which turned into ah, There Will right. Be Blood, uh, and he also wrote The Jungle, which was single handedly responsible for the Amazon uh, reforming meat uh, protocols in the U.S. Because he would writing about how yeah, slaughterhouses were so disgustingly dirty, and how like people's you know literal human bodies were like also being mixed in with the meat accidentally because oh an employee would like fall into a meat grinder and they'd be like whoops oh well <laughs> all counts and F fdr was so appalled by this that he he basically uh, created the the fda the food and drug administration uh. if i'm if i'm remembering correctly but it was like to basically regulate meat in the u.s because they had no regulations <laughs> at all a small observation that the guy who played that gentleman you're on about whose name I've completely forgotten um, is played by Bill Nye the science guy in this film he's on screen for like a, a second right. or something was it? yeah yeah I, I saw a YouTube video before I was, came to record and, that's yeah. great I did not realise that I didn't see that at all no neither did I I didn't even... yeah because you like never really see his face you just yeah. kind of see him from the side or from behind an interesting cameo I love those like when David Beckham was in uh, The Man From U.N.C.L.E. for about three frames and that sort of thing. I love those. Weird <laughs> There's a weird one at the minute in that Star Trek Discovery show is uh, David Cronenberg's in it. He just <laughs> acts in it as one of these, like... Man. Yeah, just really randomly. Yeah, just I, I saw that today. I saw that on Twitter where uh, he, he was asked about why he was on. He said, I don't know, I'm cheap and I live in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you live in Toronto. Are you, are you cheap or are you quite expensive? <laughs> you could. You could <laughs> oh, I, I'm very cheap. You can you can have me in your movie at a very low cost. You'll be in any Star Trek. In the low five figures. Yeah. Yeah. People hate that. Star Trek fans hate that show, that Star Trek Discovery. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. That's a different podcast. <laughs> I think it's all right. Now, uh, I, I feel like at this point we can maybe sort of connect the two movies because, uh, you know, despite the fact that it's, Mank is about the writing of Citizen Kane that doesn't really connect it for this episode. And I think the real connective tissue for this is this legacy of Pauline Kael, who wrote this very famous New York Times essay called Raising Kane and sort of really built the, the mythology behind 
what was going on behind the scenes, who was the real writer of the movie, and all this sort of stuff. Um, now, I didn't have time to read the actual original essay because it's a very long one. It's a part of a book now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Cain. there is, you know, numerous rebuttals out there. Mm-hmm. And so it was just very fascinating to sort of look at that and see how Mank is basically a direct rebuttal to this Pauline Kale essay and the way that the world sort of views Sis and Kane as a whole. Now, does having that sort of third piece of the puzzle really help connect the two for you guys? Yeah, I think so. And especially knowing that there's still a contentious debate out there uh, and how people, yeah, like you say, have had a rebuttal to that Kale essay and said, well, she was just, uh, you know, sort of following her biases as well. Other people were actually accusing her of stealing ideas from other people and then claiming them as her own, which is exactly what she was accusing Orson Welles of. Um, it, it adds to the mystery of the film. You know, it's not just a straightforward making of documentary. It does it does make you question not only the authors, uh, the characters as authors, but also the authors of the film as authors. Uh, so there's like inception of um, unreliable author, very authorship. Yeah. It's very just a case... Indeed. It's just a case of revisionism, really, isn't it? Basically, it's where somebody goes, oh, well, I have the evidence that this person didn't do all that they say they did and tried to take something away. And and then everyone's gone, uh, well, actually, no, this is what, how it happened, and you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> did she have, like, an axe to grind against Orson Welles? Uh, she, doesn't, she doesn't seem to like him very much. She seems to think he's some sort of It definitely sort of sociopath. seems that way. I, I haven't read a ton of Pauline Kale. But every time I do read it, she, you know, she comes from an era where film criticism, you know, was really kind of sort of expanding. You get like the Cahiers du Cinema guys with with Truffaut and uh, and over in France and stuff like that. And then you also have Kale in America. And it seems like a lot of her work was just very antagonistic a lot of the time. And so I've never really been able to get into her writing. Nothing like Roger Ebert, who I know you guys you know, try to read his reviews as much as possible on your show. I mean, if you want, I'll in... lend you the sound bite so you can play the little jingle we do here <laughs> so we can have it added into your show. But, uh, but you know, you read Roger Ebert and, and there's just so much passion mm. behind it. Even even the movies he doesn't like, he still will find something positive to say about the filmmakers or the ideas that they're trying to present in a way that, like, really speaks to film lovers of, like, this is why I watch movies. Not just because I want to love something, but because I want to appreciate the art behind it. And he does that, you know, good or bad. And, you know, Pauline Kale, a lot of her stuff just really does seem like an axe to grind where even if she likes it, it's because she has to prove a point to someone else. And if she doesn't (laughs) like it, it's because this person messed up and they're wrong and they're bad. And and so it's just like, I've never really been able to get into her. I find criticism does that to people. If someone's a critic or a commenter or, you know, they've got a... They've got a their own little op-ed thing. They tend to become so cynical because their opinion has been valued and literally they've given money for their their opinion. So their cynical opinions even more so, you know. And it, it is this weird psychological thing that happens. But yeah, with Roger Ebert, I mean, he yeah. was one of the few critics when Star Wars came out that just wholeheartedly loved it. And there's great, you know, debates that he had televised debates with more snooty critics who were kind of being too too grown up about it. And he's like, no, this is a wonderful film to enjoy for the sake of it well he obviously worked with Gene Siskel didn't he he was a lot mm. a lot more cynical one <laughs> yeah. Roger, you know Roger Ebert's basically like a warm little teddy bear going oh this film was wonderful and Siskel's like I hated it <laughs> you know and he's like you're wrong I'll tell you why you're wrong <laughs> you know he's more 
you know, newsman sort of reporting the the, fil- the talkies, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I mean, what did you guys actually think of manga as a film, just on its own? Like, did you enjoy it? Did you think it was a good film? Did you, you know, you've already said that you don't think there's the portrayal of William Hurst is very good, but what did you actually think of the film itself from start to finish? I mean, don't go, minute one, I was intrigued. You know, that's... (laughs) As a lover of of classic cinema and and even, you know, the making of movies and, and, you know, that whole behind-the-scenes sort of genre, I enjoyed that aspect quite a bit. This, you know, what is Hollywood magic? It's, you know, something on a soundstage where you've got a woman pretending to scream while she's standing there smoking (laughs) a cigarette uh, behind the camera. You know, I love that sort of stuff. And, you know, all the name dropping that they did throughout it, I I really love that. And and trying to pick up a little clues of who these people were supposed to be and what sort of careers they go on to have. I I love all that sort of stuff. And the way it was shot and edited, it it definitely had a real Citizen Kane vibe. So I appreciated that, that Fincher was trying to be uh, as in sync with what his inspiration was as possible. So I liked all that. But at the same time, you know, I just feel like so much of this was missing. I like the fact that Orson Welles wasn't a big character in the story yeah, because he already is this sort of larger than life character. We don't need him in every scene. You know, we get these fuzzy images of him and we get to hear him yelling on the phone. <laughs> that works great for me. I love that. The guy who played him just was really such good, a... wasn't he? I thought he just, he just, yeah. he was spot on with the voice. And but if, if he's on screen similar. for an hour, Orson Welles is so uh, recognizable that you just start to see the flaws in the impression, really, don't you? Yeah, it was. Well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like I love the first time we see him, you know, we get this very fuzzy image and you see the famous cape that he's yeah. wearing that there's yeah. I, I can't remember where there's definitely some film stills or, or promotional pictures where he's wearing this like large cape thing with a big black <laughs> hat and just it's so iconic looking and I'm glad that they, they use that as one of his costumes. People don't get to wear capes anymore, do we? You know, it's not a fashion. <laughs> no, we, we we should bring it back. Yeah, the uh, the over the shoulder <laughs> <But>, chain cape. <laughs> Yeah, overall, though, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty mixed about this movie. I, I think Gary Oldman did a pretty good job, but I think the issue relies more on the actual scripting of the movie, where I feel like there's there's too much missing. I think Amanda Seyfried was the real star of this movie. She was so fantastic as Marion Davies, where you really sort of, your heart breaks for her, how she's kind of caught between these two worlds. She's not really, you know, this millionaire heiress woman she just happens to be in love with a guy that is this huge industrialist and she's you know kind of stuck in the middle where she's trying to be a regular person but she's not she can't be and she does i think probably so her, I, best, I like, her best acting in the film is is probably during one of the climactic scenes at the i don't know what it's like a sort of dinner party thing you know, yeah where, mm, where, yeah you know where it gets where a man gets all drunk and thrown up and everything where she does she i don't even know if she says a, a word in the whole scene but she steals focus a lot of time because just to do great eye acting really um and yeah. you get to read so much about well, so big. that character <laughs> well i know yeah they, they, they cover like the screen a, like stalks aren't they and I think I tell you what Dakota I think something you really like about this film is you're a big fan of noir if i remember correctly is that right 
Mm-hmm. I think you said that before. Yeah. It's so noiry, and I thought I was playing Ellie Noir sometimes. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've either I like how that's your reference. <laughs> it's it so is, noir. It's... It was like I was playing a game from two thousand and eight called Ellie Noir. And it's <laughs> yeah. about like Hollywood a lot of the time. And it, the same colors, like, the same like empty like, lots where they're building some houses, and there's a big sign like of happily. Not like it anymore. reminded me of like you know uh, the Big Sleep or the Maltese Falcon, no, or no, no. Casablanca I'm, I'm or low, something. I'm low culture here. You know this. It was. Uh, it reminds me of a game. A video game based on those. Two years ago, <laughs> really good game. I hear they moved, they remastered it recently. Yeah, really yeah. good. Um, I I am glad you did bring up the noir thing because I, that was another thing I forgot about Citizen Kane is that movie. A lot of the time, the characters are literally standing in complete darkness where like you can't see them. Like you get the typical noir shot where they've got like uh, the uh, the light being reflected just on their eyes, yeah. and that's a very classic noir yeah. imagery. But this sort of feels like a little bit pre-noir where they're sort of setting the template of people being in shadows, and, and you know that probably has to do with how we perceive the characters. If they're in the dark, are they telling us the truth, that sort of thing? When they come to the light, what, what yeah. can we really believe? Is that yeah. their public versus private personas? So I like that, you know, they played with that in both of the movies. And it's a great era for blocking because you just have men in rooms with slatted windows and you know you see the light <laughs> coming through and yet you've got to uh you've got to deal with okay what's the power dynamic in this scene at the moment well he's going to be sat on the desk over him then in that case but then when the when he gets the other upper hand he's going to be then sat down in his chair and the other person's going to be looming over him and noir is a lot of that isn't it you know it's a detective going in mm-hmm. um and getting the upper hand and leaving all cool and the camera follows them as they swagger out and all this sort of stuff it quick, man quick can really talking capture as that. well Quick talking, yeah, lots of, uh, lots of dames and uh, and cigarettes and <laughs> rap games or whatever. Yeah, throat cancer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th- I noticed in Mank that they use the deep focus technique that they used in Citizen mm-hmm. Kane. Um, I, I thought that might happen. To be fair, um, that they would use that technique. Yeah. But what other thoughts did you have on the movie then, Hugh? But Hugh's having some technical issues. I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll take over from there. I mean, for, you know, for me, it, it's a very long film. It's two hours fifteen, which in itself is not a negative. But it was re- really interesting how they they managed to um, they managed to reflect a lot of the techniques used in Citizen Kane from a structural point of view, and then they're very meta about it. You know, it jumps around too much. And it's just a lot of uh, vignettes of talkies and all this sort of stuff. And and then Mank does that very knowingly. Um, and I quite like that when they have a flashback, they they have the screen, uh, you know, screenplay uh, text on the screen saying, you know, flashback 19 whatever, 34. Um, and I quite like that they tried to try to mimic that because it was it actually made me enjoy Citizen Kane more because I got to see that those things were intentional mechanisms as opposed to flaws, flaws in storytelling and structure. Right, okay. I mean, like, as I said, uh, for me, I didn't... It was okay, but I didn't love it. I didn't think... It didn't. Re- it doesn't really add anything for me to the mythos that is Citizen Kane. Do you know what I mean? It was more like... Mm-hmm. I feel like Fincher had the... Sc- his father wrote the screenplay, didn't he? Like 20 years ago or something. He did, quite a while ago too, yeah. It was like yeah. 99 or something. So it felt like more of a passion project for him to do this film and because he's because it's David Fincher and Citizen Kane, he was able to get all these amazing actors and actresses on board. But I just I just was kind of left... I, I kind of feel Gary Oldman was a bit too old for the role. Like, I know that Mank was a bit... You know, he was an alcoholic. He probably wasn't in the best of shape. But there's a bit where he goes, oh, I'm 42. And it's like, <laughs> you're, not, you're not... Well, you're not 
first of all, you're, <laughs> you're not 42. You're an old man. You're, you're quite he's, literally a Gary old man. Yeah, he's literally 20 years <laughs> older than the character he's meant to be playing. And I felt like, I think they miss, like, I love Gary Oldman, but I think he was the wrong person for this film. I think they should have gone with somebody mm. who was about the age of the character. Because then when you go... Anyone in particular? Not off the top of my head, no. Um, but it was just... Because there was flashing back even further. Like, you just don't buy that he's 32 or whatever. <laughs> or in his late in his mid-30s in, like, 1934 and 1930 and all this. You just sit there going, he's clearly, like... At least 50, yeah. <laughs> at mid-50s at least. And I, I suppose that you could say, oh, well, you know, the, the critic in me would go, well, actually, they're paralleling um, Scissors and Kane by having the actor portray different ages of a role that he's not actually at. And it's like, yeah, maybe, but it's just, you know, actors of this calibre do these kind of things all the time, don't they? And I suppose if you see photos of Mank and there's a photo of him and Orson Welles and you know he doesn't look he looks older maybe than what he is but he doesn't look a man in his early 60s <laughs> to be quite honest with you yeah 40 year olds in it... 1930s didn't look 40 now do they no 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 <laughs> a lot less lycra <laughs> did uh, many of, did either of you think that or is that just me being pernickety uh, no, I, I understand what you're saying. It's it's tough because, you know, Mankovich did have some hard miles on him. Yeah, tough paper and, <laughs> and Gary Oldman isn't, a, you know, your traditional Hollywood attractive leading man. So I, I sort of appreciate that they sort of kept with that a little bit. But uh, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I like Gary Oldman. I, I, I don't think his performance was the issue. I think more of it was, was just the, the, the script more than anything. You were saying that um, you thought... Amanda Seyfried was the best thing in this. I thought Lily Collins was the best thing in this film. Acting very good. Mm. Yeah, like I never really, I didn't really seen her in that much and didn't really rate her that highly. Um, but then, yeah, I thought she was probably the best. She's like kind of the the heart of the film, I guess, because she's, when she finds out that he drank the, um, I don't know, is it like sleeping? What is it that he drinks? Is it like a sleeping aid or something? He drinks the whole bottle. Yeah, it, it, that wasn't completely clear of what exactly he was drinking, but whatever it was, lads. <laughs> you shouldn't have drank the whole bottle. <laughs> yeah, um, and then he gets the drink in, and then, you know, she's the one who finds out about him moving the German villagers to um, to America to save him from the Nazis. So, yeah, it's like, like there's stuff like that that's quite interesting. I, so, as I said, I feel like this was something that David Fincher wanted to do because his dad had written the screenplay. I could quite have happily watched Citizen Kane and never watched this film. It doesn't add anything extra for me. And I think the fact that the controversy with um, Kale sort of has been kind of debunked. You know, she was wrong and that's the end of it. You know, you can go back and there's people who have... Um, I, I, the Rita, what was her name? Uh, Lily Collins played in this film. Rita Alexander, is it? Yeah. Sorry, not her. Um, Orson Welles' secretary at the time. You know, she said, well, I was doing writing. I was, you know, Orson Welles was dictating stuff to me and I was writing stuff. I was typing stuff up. So what the hell was I doing all that time? Do you know what I mean? What was I writing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a a one-sided thing. Yeah, I mean, from we all watched the same like little video essay and it basically said, well, Orson Welles wrote his version of the script. Mank wrote his version and he kept what he liked from Mank's version and the bits that he liked from his own and kind of hybrid, hybridised, easy for me to say, <laughs> um, the two, which 
I imagine, yeah. Sounds about right, doesn't it? I would sort of look at it, basic, basing on everything that we know, you know, I think Mankiewicz really brought who this, you know, William Randolph Hearst character is and the sort of overarching, you know, idea of the character that he brings. And then Orson Welles sort of, you know, invented the scenes for him to play in. Yeah. And so you can have the two of them where they're, they're both the authors of this. And that's the thing that I think, you know, I find so silly to even why, wonder why there's this controversy. Because you look at a lot of movies, you know, a Hollywood blockbuster, we usually have anywhere from like seven to eight people that we know are working yeah. on it. And yeah. that doesn't even include, you know, people that do uncredited script doctoring. Yeah. But, you know, almost every single movie, unless it's like someone... You know, very much like a Quentin Tarantino where, like, I write everything I do. Every single word is all me, nothing else. Or the Coen brothers where they're very super specific about how their characters speak. Almost every movie usually will incorporate two people as a writer. So it's not a shock at all that you have someone who's maybe more in charge of the characters and someone that's more in charge of the story. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. There should be no controversy at all. Yeah, but I think it's maybe the antagonism between them and the, the attempts from one to block out the other that that does create the that creates the drama and the story about it, doesn't it? Strange that he even agreed to like not have his name credited in the first place, isn't it? I think. Yeah, maybe just a, an element of desperation. Yeah. And you know, well, I'm going to get paid for this job. But I don't realise it's going to be the best thing I've ever made. Yeah, and then it turned, and then once he's written it and read it, read it, he was like, "Oh, this is my best work, so I want credit for this and deserve credit for it." And yeah, him and Wells have that little showdown where Wells throws something and breaks it across the room and he goes, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to put this in the movie. <laughs> no, what are the chances? Eh? Because like, no <laughs> one's ever reacted badly to bad news before. <laughs> to, the, to the film's great credit, there are, two, there are two big things that it had to dramatise that could be really boring. One of them is writing, which a lot of films <laughs> have tried to dramatise and it, it rarely looks good and it's really interesting. I mean, if it's not set in a cabin in the middle of winter with the threat of somebody going to hobble you, then what, is it, what are you even doing? <laughs> What's the you point, know? yeah. And, what is um, the point? And the other one is, um, you know, kind of basically contract dispute. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not very exciting. but actually, Litigation. <laughs> litigation, <movie>. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I thought they did a really good job and I, I'm not, I didn't love the film, but again... I think there were just some elements that put me off, but I think there's some great lines in it and there's some great bits. And, you know, mm. I do think Gary Oldman was, was excellent. Oh yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think he was too old to play the part, but he is good in it. Yeah. And he's, he's very mm. charming and he's, he's believable as a loose cannon who you actually want to be on the same side of. Yeah. Yeah. And he's strict, you know, he's got his principles, hasn't he? Yeah. Even when it costs him 24,000 pounds, uh, dollars, sorry, which in today's money is like, I don't know, like hundred thousand or something. Oh, at least, yeah. yeah no what would it be in Canadian dollars? Do they even go up to that number in Canadian dollars? <laughs> ah. How many moose is that? <laughs> That's so funny. No, it's six elks, four moose, and a reindeer. <laughs> you know, it's a lot. Uh, one, one interesting thing that I feel like hasn't been approached at all, I don't know how true this is, but I read somewhere that the original fight sort of stemmed from the fact that in Orson Welles's contract with RKO... He dictated oh, yeah, that he yeah, had to yeah. write and direct the movie. And so that's why he was adamant that his name appeared as written by. And he was worried that if Mankiewicz's name was on there either solely or a joint credit, that RKO would uh, not pay him his salary because his salary was based on doing both jobs, not just one. Yeah. So this is something that like I don't I don't really know the validity of, validity of it. I've read it before. And so... 
I haven't seen any, you know, proof of contracts or something like that or, or in a memo that that's what Wells's concern was. But I, I would be interested to see how true that and is. Yeah, less, that less dramatic, that's a less dramatic motivation for him rather than being a sort of monster. And, you know, th- there's an element exactly. of let's, let's print the legend. It's a more human things. reason, isn't it? It is. Because he's, he's concerned, you know, he's still young and he's and he's just concerned about his about money really and he wants to fulfill his contractual also, obli- why, obligations why was why was he such a big big billy big bollocks well, he was 24 and like what did he have on these studios that he had so much control and power and money was it just because he was so charming and convincing what, what had he done before this was he, was he a great actor in other stuff well he he ran his his group called the Mercury Players, and they were they would do theater productions, but they also did radio dramas. Now I know none of us remember this because we're way <laughs> too young, but uh, but radio dramas were you know the the biggest thing before movies. Like, oh, was the war of people the were worried about uh, that they would kill this. the industry. Yeah, that was in thirty. That was in the thirties. Yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah. Yeah, so we did. So we did the very famous radio play of War mm. of the World, where people thought Martians were actually <laughs> attacking Earth or whatever it was, because he made it seem as realistic as possible. And people tuning in, they would do these like little update bulletins of this is what's <laughs> happening in the world, and you know people were terrified that the Earth was actually under mm. attack, Wonderful. and that gained him a ton of infamy. Do you know my favorite fact about that is is the fact that they advertised it as a radio play or as a, <laughs> and they said this is a radio play we're doing War of the Worlds and it was just the people who hadn't sure heard the advertising I'm sure yeah no it's I, no it's a, that's like a myth oh, yeah I they see, advertised yeah. it yeah and they were like no well, you know a new play from uh, but he, he was definitely in a unique position where going into Hollywood as a first time filmmaker he was given carte blanche he didn't have to get any sort of approval for what type of movie he wanted to. They would give him a budget, but that's Amazing. about it. And full creative control where they, the studio couldn't say how it was going to be edited or anything like that. And that was completely unheard of then, and it's completely unheard of now. No studio will ever do that sort of deal with a first-time oh, filmmaker. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, imagine that's imagine that you make that as your first film. Like, yeah. how can you... How, I mean... Oh, well, what yeah, am I going to make what, next? <laughs> this is just up and up yeah. from here. It's not going to be known as my best ever. Surely I'm going to get that. that. I mean, you've peaked at 27, mate. You know? <laughs> but this is interesting that you know, when you see him in interviews, you can sort of believe that he would be able to charm and cajole and negotiate his way into a situation like that as well as having as you, as you said he could have like you know some success on the radio before that i think it was just that he was in a he was in a unique position because of say like Arc- i think it says at the beginning monk that rko were in a were struggling financially as well so they were willing to give a lot of money to a, a, a young and up-and-coming director but yeah to get complete you know control is rare isn't it I think only like people like yeah, George well, Lucas. Every once in a while, they'll be like, "Yeah, every once in a while, you'll like hear the story of like a, a hot theater director with their first movie." You know, I think of someone like Sam Mendes, who was a huge theater director over in England, and his first picture was American Beauty, which ended up winning Best Picture. Which you know, very few first-time <laughs> filmmakers are able to do something like that. I mean, look at um, Steve McQueen, and, the director who made Twelve Years a Slave. Yeah, like he wasn't really a filmmaker. He was. He was an artist, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, I believe he was like a, he did a few different things. He was he was a theater director, but he also was doing like visual arts and things like that. Yeah, he won the Turner Prize, I think, in '99. But yeah, so it's definitely very interesting to sort of look at all that and sort of see how it all connects. Uh, and you know, a big sort of criticism I feel like 
that Pauli and Kale was trying to level was destroying the idea of the auteur theory, which is that a single person is responsible for the creation of a film. And it's something that, you know, while I sort of disagree with the idea of one person is, you know, intrinsically responsible for, for a, a movie, at the same time, you can look around of directors who have made, you know, 5, 10, 15 movies and, and just see how much of an impression a single person can really have. You, you know, I mentioned Quentin Tarantino earlier. If you removed his name from his movie, you'd definitely be able to tell what a Tarantino oh, yeah. movie yeah, is, absolutely. despite the fact that he's got, you know, an army of people behind him that are there to make sure that they can execute the vision. But is he not an auteur? Well, that's an, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you go, oh, this is a Quentin Tarantino film, and then you watch the credits and you go, there's 300 names in that list. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but certainly to have that singular vision. And then you find out things like, oh, well, so-and-so has used the same cinematographer a single time, so is it a Coen Brothers film or is it a Roger Deakinson you know, Coen Brothers film or Tim Burton? I can't remember the yeah. name of the guy who he work, mostly works with. You know, Tim Burton has that sort of visual style. And then, well, maybe that's just his... I mean, Tim Burton's visual style is so strong that I, for years, thought that the uh, the the Nightmare Before Christmas was a Tim Burton directed film. I would say Tim Burton and Danny Elfman, right. because the music so much sets the tone for a, uh, a Burton. Yeah, movie. massively. And and you, I think uh, I've recently watched Adam's Family, which stands up as a genuinely great film. By the way, I don't know if any of you have seen that in the last ten years. Um, Re- yeah, we I rewatched it recently for right. Halloween. It's yeah, exactly. Excellent. Yeah, that was right. And I don't know if Danny Elfman did the music, but it is so Danny Elfman that it doesn't matter that it's not him. So I think like with um, with Tenor, it wasn't Hans Zimmer, but it might as well have been. You know, it was uh, Ludwig Göransson. And you go, well, yeah, but he's been told to do the Hans Zimmer thing, you know? So it's like, it becomes a Christopher Nolan film. But actually that means it's a Christopher Nolan and a Hans Zimmer or a Hans Zimmer substitute comes in and, you know, use the same cinematographer and whatnot. Yeah, because he used Wally Fister for a while, didn't yeah. for a long time. I don't know. If, I don't know who who did the cinematography on Tenet. <laughs> Still haven't perfected the uh, pronunciation there, Hugh. Off the top of my head, I do no, not I don't know. know. But it, yeah, sorry, Fister, I sorry. How should I pronounce it, Sam? <laughs> Bloody heck! Yeah. <laughs> we, we 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 had a, a long conversation <laughs> you, about the pronunciation. You were the one who said you said it's pronounced Tenet, <laughs> Tenet or whatever. I thought it was Tenant. Yeah. There's only one end. Just pronounce yeah. it as Tenet, and that'll be easier. I mean, D- Dakota, did you find that Mank basically made you like Citizen Kane, the film, more, less, or basically didn't affect it? Uh, I-, I think it was, you know, what he was saying, where I think it's, you know, a nice movie to watch, but I don't think it really changes my opinion mm-hmm. on it. Um yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I think it's pretty easy to sort of separate the two where I, I look at them and they're two very distinct ones. Citizen Kane stands on its own, but Mank needs Citizen Kane in order to understand yes, it. Yes, it couldn't stand on its own. I think for me, it made me enjoy it more, especially when he's describing what the film is that he's going to write when he's, again, at the the party where he throws up from being too drunk. Him describing the film kind of made yeah. me appreciate how the film Citizen Kane fit together more. Um having really mm-hmm. seen it you know for the first time recently and not having much time to stew and digest and go back to it uh, to really understand the significance of things and there's some some things that sound better when they're described to you than when you just watch the scene so for example when he's with um what's his wife is it marion in in the citizen king what's her no what's her name the second wife Susan, Susan, Susan Anthony. Um, that's right. And the second wife, first, first wife. Yeah, the second wife. Is it? You know, she's playing jigsaw puzzles basically. Um, 
Those scenes yeah. are interesting, but I find it more interesting if somebody said, so now all she does all day is play jigsaw puzzles in this big palace you yes. know, by, her, by herself, really. Um, so yeah, the way it's described, I find somehow more arresting than the film itself. One thing I did like in Mank, though, was um, after seeing Citizen Kane for the first time, obviously the other night, uh, and then watching Mank was the bit when he's talking when you know when he's doing the interview in Citizen Kane with uh, Jebediah when he's an old man and he talks about seeing the girl with a parasol on the boat yeah yeah that's good oh and they recreated yeah, that yeah yeah and that and I'm, I'm, you know if you see if you saw this you know if you're you saw this film 40 years ago or whatever or 30 years or something and then you see that you know you've been thinking you know Finch has clearly been thinking about that for a long time <laughs> and wanted to uh you know, he wanted to add, or his dad wanted to add that in, mm. you know, which I think is a really nice little thing, I thought, actually. It was interesting, but what the the problem was, was that it was different to the image that I had of that, you know, because it is only an image painted with words, and then to actually just see it is always going to be let down. It's almost like watching the, you know, uh, the, what, film, when you watch the... the film version <laughs> of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not how I would have done it. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. A question I've got for you, Dakota, is yeah, no. uh, obviously recently you did your David Fincher ranked episode, which I really liked with Joe, and um, I basically agree with your ordering, although I would put Panic Room slightly higher up. Where does, where, I don't know if you, this was a question, sorry to, but I'm not the host here, but I'm kind of just for some reason, uh, I saw a microphone and, and thought I was. Um, where does <laughs> Mank now rank <laughs> in your David Fincher? He's a poet ranking? and he's unaware of his ability. <laughs> Rhyme verses. <laughs> well, I, I did create... I've got a letterbox list. I'm just pulling that up right mm. now. And I did add Mank to it. Ooh, I want to guess, actually. Let's see. Oh, we're... I don't mind having a guess at this one. So... Uh, I put it eighth. So it's, you know, the only right. ones that are better for me. If you listen to the last episode, my, my rankings are going to be slightly different than the way oh, it of course, actually shook out. But my bottom three are... are Panic Room, the game, and then Alien 3 is the worst, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mank would be just in front of Panic Room. Right, I see. So the game is slightly better than Mank. No, 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 no. Uh, number 11 is Alien 3, number 10 is the game, number 9 oh, is Panic Room. Oh, sorry, yeah, you're, I'm looking Mank. at the, the aggregate list. Yeah, fair enough. So just behind uh, Benjamin, Benjamin Button after that. Now, I think... I think this is a great segue. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I actually want to just talk some some actual David Fincher with you guys as well. Okay. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankowitz. New York playwright and drama critic. Turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. And now we're back. We sort of ended with a nice little segue of you asking me where it sort of ranks in my David Fincher filmography where Mm -hmm. Mank does. And so I'd be interested to kind of hear uh, from both of you, Sam and Hugh, what your overall thoughts on David Fincher as a filmmaker. Do you have any favorites? Do you have any ones that you really don't like? Just sort of, you know, what are your overall impressions of his filmography? So, So Sam, let's, I guess, start with you. I'm a big fan. Yeah, you know, I love him. Uh, I'm looking at the list now. 
I, you know, I think he's got at least three films that I would consider genuine, you know, world class, proper, all time good, good films. <laughs> um, and they those are those would be the Social Network, Fight Club, and Seven, um, which I, you know, I put up there. I put up there with any any films from the last twenty five years, really. Um, I think in the order of Fight Club, followed by seven followed by social network probably but basically fight club stands mm. uh, ahead of the others and then seven and social network i'm basically on a par with. Mm. yeah i think he's a truly outstanding filmmaker i zodiac is one of those films that i need to re-watch because i think i liked it but it was a long time ago and i think i'd i think i'd love it if i rewatched it uh, there's a couple i haven't seen but yeah <laughs> there's a, there's a few there that are genuine world-class what about you, Hugh? Um, I would just echo Sam pretty much, yeah. Um, I really like David Fincher. He has he has the odd stinker every now and then, you know, with he's not he's not he's not perfect. Um, you know, Alien Three is a good example of that. That's a terrible film. Um, <laughs> but I think Dakota, you made a good point that that's kinda of not really his film, is it? Uh, when when you were doing your episode on that. Yeah, he, he doesn't consider it yeah. one of his own. It was his first really? film, is, that, think, is, is it? it that is it that bad? That's interesting, isn't it? No, it was just that um, he fought so much with the studio. Like, they kept trying to change the way it was going. And it was basically a, a movie by committee. Yeah. And then during the editing process, he was actually fired. So he doesn't um, consider it the edit, the edit is the final, you know, piece of the filmmaking yeah. puzzle, isn't it? Yeah. There, are, there are three that I haven't seen. I haven't, or maybe even four. I don't think I've seen The Dragon Tattoo, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I definitely haven't oh, that seen was the other, That was the other film I was going to say. That's not brilliant. You but know, it's, not, it's, not a bad, it's not a bad film, but the Swedish TV version that was made back in like the early or like mid-2000s is a lot better. It's, it's almost a shot yeah, for shot. Yeah, I've never seen the original Swedish Are one. Almost shot for shot. Is that, is that on your uh, to-do list for make-remake uh, series, Dakota? Probably not. Probably because uh, I've... You know, I'm, you know, exposing a little bit behind the scenes stuff here, but uh, I found that doing just any random movie pairing wasn't doing as well listenership wise. Right. So now I've been trying to tie them in with uh, a new release. I know I had earlier this year kind of brought up the idea of doing <laughs> uh, Death on the oh, Nile yeah. oh, yeah. because that was supposed to come out this year and have you guys on and, and tackle those those two movies. So I'll probably still do that next year if that comes out. You're, you guys are welcome to come on for Anytime that. Anytime in the next want. eighteen months, still, so, yeah, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll be there. Yeah, yeah. But, so, so I've now I've tried to 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 pair it up that way where it's about a, a new release. So earlier this year I did uh, Rebecca, and Visible I also one, I did uh, another one where I'm, I'm blanking one. on on what it is, and I'm. Yes, the Invisible Man. Thank you, thank you. You know my <laughs> show far better than I. I think do. I might but, be your biggest fan, other than maybe Stephanie. But even then, <laughs> yeah, I, as but, long as I'm more episodes, I'll be I'll be the number one fan. But yeah, in regards to Fincher, I think he's especially when you t- pair him with a, an amazing screenwriter like Aaron Sorkin. Like The Social Network's one of my favorite films, and even like his middle of the road, so to speak, films like Gone Girl and Benjamin Button are still really good films. Like I'm, I'm of the pro Benjamin Button camp. I really like that film. Yeah, I I like it. I don't love it. Uh, if you heard on the last episode, Joe, the my guest, he loves that movie, and, and that was one that we that was our biggest mm. differences on. Uh, you know, he's the type of person where even even his bad movies still have a really interesting point of view, and he's actually doing something interesting. Yeah. So I would watch a movie like Alien Three for you know all its warts and all over you know 
pretty much any other bad movie because at least it still has a perspective. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Panic Room, you've got very low down on the list. I, I got a soft spot for that, I think, just because I watched it a lot. Um, you had it, didn't you, on I video? I had it on DVD, I think. yeah. I think oh, it was DVD. One, one of the early DVDs, because it's 2002. I think I, I watched think. it at your at your house. Actually. Quite probably. And I just I just really like it, and it was in the years gone by that I've gone, oh, wow, that's that. That's uh, Kristen Stewart, and that's uh, Jared Leto, and that's Forrest Whitaker, you know, actors who, I, when I was 13 or so, didn't weren't, wasn't really familiar with. Um, I remember finding Kristen Stewart very annoying. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of the character as well. But yeah, I, I just I really like it. I yeah, think that's that's what it was, role. Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I don't know what you two think, but you know, Fight Club very much defined a generation, didn't mm-hmm. it? That sort of malaise at the end of the twentieth mm-hmm. century. You know, the 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 um, was it the Gen Xers had kind of grown up a little bit. Yeah. You know, and grunge had kind of died and was go you know out of the window, and yeah, it was sort of very much in the mould of you know everyone was like oh you know the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club <laughs> you know everyone and like I think you've said a few times Sam on our podcast uh, please watch this ladies and gentlemen if you want <laughs> we did do an episode Tune of Gone in. Girl you should uh, yep, 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 yep. Um, you said that you know the what people took from that film initially isn't what that film's about yeah yeah, and exactly. It's only as you get older and you watch it more that you're like, oh yeah, that film's actually about this. But the question I wanted to ask you both was, of the so say of maybe uh, Fight Club, and I th- personally think The Social Network are probably his two best films. Which of those two do you think will stand like the test of time, so to speak? Which which one will he be remembered more for? And you can say seven as well. <laughs> I mean, Dakota, I was reassured when you said in the, I think it was you, it could, I think it was maybe Joe, but I'm pretty sure it was you, in the episode you said that you hadn't seen Fight Club for a few years, you were a bit reluctant and a bit worried about going back and revisiting it. Yeah, that was me. Um, and you still found a lot of joy in it. Does that give you hope that it'll still be iconic in 20 years? Yeah, and you know, I think the fact that they're so different from each other, because, you know, stylistically, you could look at maybe something like Fight Club and Seven, and, you know, they're both very dark nihilistic movies, so you can kind of see how maybe Fight Club is the one that people will talk about more than it'll be Seven, Uh, but, you know, Fight Club and, and The Social Network are both so different from each other that I think there's room for both of them to remember it. And I was no, no, you've got to pick one. Go to situation, pick one. It's it's so tough because I I think for for different people, it's going to be remembered differently. You know, I like, you know, people joke on the internet where, you know, the basic bro filmography (laughs) is, you know, stuff like Fight Club and Mm. The Dark Knight and and whatever have you, Shawshank Redemption. And those are the only movies that you know. And there's a reason why, you know, they're the most, you know, some of the most famous movies of the last 25, 30 years. And so I think Fight Club really does stand up. But then, you you know, you look at what the social network is doing and how it's so subversive and, you know, maybe probably one of the greatest all-time scripts. Like, seriously, that Aaron Sorkin script might be one of the, the best written movies yeah. ever It might be one of the best written movies ever made, but nobody really talks like that. Yeah, doesn't matter though. <laughs> no, it's it's very hyper real, isn't it? No, Especially. yeah, that's the thing. And again, you know, it's, it's David Fincher. In that case, Sorkin, but also didn't Fincher in his in, in his um, directing, making something incredibly boring, really, you know, dramatic, uh, a, de- a deposition. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he's gone from writing and contract disputes and depositions and made them really engaging. 
And, and I think a, a benefit for social network is, regardless of how good the film is or bad the film is, in 30 years' time, it's going to be the Facebook movie, and Facebook has had a big cultural impact, so that film is connected to the yeah. cultural impact that Facebook... They both caught a zeitgeist, didn't they? I think that's what's important. Yeah, really well. Is that he knows how to kind of capture that and to, to, to give you an insight, maybe, into how the world operates. Did he operates. write a screenplay for Fight Club? It's obviously adapted from a novel, but... No. No. No, he does. Fincher doesn't write yeah. his own movies. That's about, that's I mean, funny. one thing he does do though a lot is he uses an absolute shit ton of um, CGI, yeah. doesn't he? In his films, in very subtle ways. But yeah, mm-hmm. in a, yeah, in ridiculously subtle ways that you never notice. Like Zodiac's a great example of that. I was wondering if you guys thought there was any CGI in Mank that you might have noticed or not noticed, just out of curiosity. I, I did have it in the back of my mind sometimes. Well, there's a few moments. There was a few moments where I think it, it kind of stood out, but I think it was on purpose. And that's the thing where Fincher, when he uses, you know, a lot of CGI in his scenes, it stands out, but it's not like you're watching, you know, a big, you know, Marvel yeah. movie where you're like, oh, this isn't real. It's It just has this interesting dreaminess to it. And I think the one, there's a, there's a couple scenes where they're driving in cars and it almost has this sort of rear projection style that they would do in, you know, in old classic Hollywood movies where, you know, you'd have your character driving in the car and then the background behind the car (laughs) is, you know, a a shifting road. And I feel like he's recreating that using his style of CGI where it just sort of like looks off just Mm. enough that you go, well, it messes with you, doesn't it? But he's clearly doing it to imitate the rear projection style. Because it says, oh, um, it looks like the car's moving, but it's kind of is but it's kind of not but here's the set going past it in the opposite direction to give it that sensation of motion I yeah. thought the fire looked CGI for some reason in this film maybe that's what fire looks like in black and white interesting and I'm guessing the the uh, the giraffes were CGI as well <laughs> oh they yeah that, that's been, true yeah. That, that was the only bit that was a little fake for me and it's, it's a, I don't know what it is but I, and I think um, going back to the Fight Club social network comparison I, I mean I would I be right in saying that Fight Club is on film and Social Network is digital? Yeah. It looks a lot smoother, doesn't it? And I think that's yeah. that's almost been the the biggest thing for me. that when I, when I think about the benefits of digital cinematography and film, I think of David Fincher actually more than anyone else. With how sort of smooth and... Yeah, yeah know, that's true. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly not an expert in this, but how smooth Social Network looks, I think that's the main benefit to it. Now, I kind of want to end up a little bit here with uh, with some Zodiac stuff, and I feel like it's the perfect time. Oh, I don't yeah. know if it's just, you know, zeitgeist or what, but uh, word just came out that they solved one of the Zodiac ciphers, and so that's fascinating, considering I just rewatched Zodiac in the last <laughs> month, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff. They talk about how in the movie, how he purposely misspells words, and in this cipher... Three times he misspells paradise, spelt P A R D I C. Like a slice and dice. So very interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's almost like the news wanting to capitalize on the fact that Finch is in the news now. Uh, let's let's quick release that Zodiac <laughs> <Probably. Yeah>, story. <laughs> yeah, it was for me and Sam were talking about it the other yesterday actually, and last night or this morning I was just yeah I was just browsing on the on the internet and I was like oh look at this so I sent him the article link to be like oh check this out 
It's, uh, but it's, but yeah, it's made news all around the world, hasn't it? Now, on your show, you guys usually talk about like what your favorite shot or line is. I, I'd be oh, remiss if I didn't, ask I didn't you write it down. Did I start thinking about what nurse to take? I thought, oh, right, no. well, obviously, I could get my favorite scene, my favorite line. Did you write <laughs> your, have, you, have you written yours down? I don't know, I <laughs> no, I just sort of remarked as soon oh. as there was one that I liked. I did, I did, I, I stored it in my memory that's clearly just. I didn't realize this was going to be a please watch this takeover. <laughs> <laughs> I would have actually written this down. Um, seen invasion. as, seen as you invasion. seem to know what you're. You seem to have uh, decided what you wanted to say, Sam. Go on. Why don't you go with your favorite scene first? Oh, no, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Although I would say, no, I do know my favorite scene, actually. So my favorite scene is definitely uh, where he gets drunk at the, the dinner scene um, and talks about the film he's going to write and it's going to be. Uh, you know, basically describes the plot of Citizen Kane. I think that's certainly my favourite scene. It is. It is a hard scene not nice. to uh, to enjoy, is it? Yeah. As he goes, as he slowly walks around the table. Uh, I for Citizen Kane, I think my favourite maybe line I can't remember off by heart, but it was the one that he was talking about earlier, where uh, he's telling the story about uh, the girl on the the boat with the parasail. And like, I think we all kind of have those sort of moments in our life where, you know, we pass by something or someone in just a, a blink of an eye. And, and for some reason, it just sort of sticks in our brains, whether it's, you know, a romantic observation or not, where just for some reason, it just kind of worms our way in our brain. And, and we still think about it 10, 20, 30 yeah. years later. So I really love that. And as far as Mank, my favorite shot in that was the the reveal of Orson Welles, where we see Mank waking up in the hospital bed and, and Wells comes in with the cape on and it's all fuzzy <laughs> and the camera's spinning around. Fantastic really shot. shot. That is a really good shot. Yeah, it's interesting you say about the, the moment. Um, in, in a lot of films, that's where the guy turns to his buddy and says, hey, you see that girl over there? I'm going to marry her someday. <laughs> you know, and then 10 years later, they've got a white picket fence <laughs> yes. and uh, two kids. <laughs> Does, um, I like the, I like in the, my favourite kind of line in Monk is when... He's talking to, uh, is it Louis uh, Mayer? Or is it Goldwyn? Louis Mayer. Yeah, and he's Louis like... Louis yeah. And he's space... I can't remember. I see... I wish I'd written this down now. Um, <laughs> but he's like talking about like movie business and he's going, you know, it's about emotion and it's in here and it's in here and he grabs his bollocks and he goes, it's in, in here as well, which is quite funny. Um and that is a great scene, actually. It that, is, isn't again, it? Again, to sort of show the duplicitousness yeah. of it, and you're still not sure—is uh, he just a sincere actor, or is, does he yeah. mean stuff? I mean, there's a bit here um, on IMDb where it's got the, a quote where he's like, "This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies, and don't let anyone yeah. tell you different." Um, and and Mank does have so many great, oh, yeah. smart little lines and. And Mank himself gets a lot of them, but not many of What's, them are on the IMDb um, <laughs> uh, uh, quotes list, so I can't give you any word for word. I'm afraid. What was the one that he says where he, when he's talking to um, Amanda Siegfried, and he goes like, he says he quotes somebody, and then he and then he gives a bit of his own. Writing. Oh, it's, it's Don Quixote's quote, yeah. isn't it? And then he gives his own line. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. So memorable, See, I memorised is... it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just felt we just felt nice things and didn't get yeah, anything from it. Other than the nice memories. <laughs> That's fine. So Hugh, I have to ask you: Does this compare a little bit easier now? Where usually Sam's the taskmaster and he's always putting you up to, you know, mischievous things. Does this feel a little bit uh, I mean, calmer and easier? Does he? Do, the two films you've been on, you were on 
the Life Aquatic and Before Sun. So you've only seen it where where Sam's the one who's the host, not me. That's the host. You should see you should see the the, the pain I put him through. <laughs> I love I love to uh, yeah I love that yeah the, certainly for the quizzes certainly yeah. Well, do you want me to put Sam through the paces Ooh. a little bit? Well, then I have a quiz for you, Sam. Yes, get in. Let's see if it wasn't one of the scenes that I slept through. Um, Give it, give it. (laughs) So, Sam, how much does it cost to see a movie during the time Mank takes place? (laughs) It's 25 cents. You're right. Oh, wow. Yes, I can sleep well tonight. Question two. How tall is King Kong? (laughs) Ten stories. Yep. (laughs) Good question. Question three. MGM's slogan in the 50s was more stars than there are in heaven, but according to Louis B. Mayer, who is the only real star? The, oh, I know this. Oh, Leo the Lion. Leo the Lion, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Great question. What is the name of the rival newspaper to the Inquirer? Oh, I definitely should know that. I definitely should know that. I'm going to pass this over to Hugh. Oh, He's got a look don't at his face do that says, to I me. I don't know that. The <laughs> It is the Chronicle, yeah. Because yeah. she's, she's reading it. Um, his first wife's reading it at the dinner table, at the breakfast <laughs> the table breakfast one morning, scene, yeah. as if to go, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't swear. All right, and the last question. Ooh. Charles Foster Kane's mansion is called Xanadu. What is it named after? Oh, I know this. Uh, the Abba song. Yeah, that's song. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're thinking of you're future. thinking of Waterloo. <laughs> you're thinking of the Olivia Newton-John songs. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's right. That's what I'm thinking of. I'm, what physical? They're basically in the, in the same sort of field. <laughs> um, it's no? a myth- mythological thing. No, it's um, not. I can't remember hmm. the specific. Well, I mean, what, what's it in reference to? What is what is William Randolph Hearst's? Go on, Hugh. I'm sweating here. Well, no, it says. Does it says? I, I, I might be wrong now. You've got. Oh, you've got me. Um, it's saying that Xanadu was the the pleasure palace of Kublai Khan. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Grandson of Genghis Khan. Scary. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you guys give up on this one? Oh, is that wrong? I'm sure that's the answer, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> No, the the original house that William Randolph Hearst. What's what's the name of that? I, oh, I guess I worded what was the, the name oh, of his house? Oh, that's right, San right, right. that's San Simeon. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well yes. done, Hugh. Well done. That's great. There you go. Yeah. So combined, you went, you went five for five. I thought it was. Uh, I thought at first <laughs> when they were on about Xanadu in the film, I thought it was a dig at Walt Disney in Disneyland because it says that uh, Xanadu is in Florida and uh, Disneyland. The first one was in Florida, or is in Florida. Mm-hmm. When was that open? Would that have been I, open already? Oh, maybe not. It might have not been open. That's a fair point you make. But it is a kind of a, a strange kind of life imitating art if it is that uh, um, it was opened after. Well, I want to I wanna end on a little bit of feedback. I got a, I got a message from Callum McNabb, host of Scare to Do, saying... I thought you meant feedback on us then. I was like, yeah, boys, you've done okay this episode. Could have done minus. better. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I expected more... <laughs> No, he's a he's a lovely Scottish uh, podcaster, and he sent me a very nice message saying that he was uh, he was currently listening to the the episode, the Fincher rank list, uh, and he's just over halfway through with Zodiac his favorite. And even though I disagree with his take, I love Joe's points about the lack of resolution for the film. That's why I actually think it works so well. It's the anti dragon tattoo or anti spotlight. All this work leads to nothing more than speculation. It's a horror 
in the truest sense of the word. So for all my disagreements to his views, the fact that Joe says the film still instills real fear is a wonderful point. Zodiac is a horror movie. Rant over. So Cal, thank you very much for that. That was a, a great message. I, I'll give some feedback on Callum's feedback. Callum, you did a great job, and I agree with you. I'm going to give some feedback on Sam's feedback um, on Callum's feedback. Um, <laughs> Sam, I think you were pandering there to the to uh, to the audience. To be honest, <laughs> no, he's he's you know he's in all fairness, Callum makes a very good point about Zodiac. There, mm. it is a film that's um, yeah, it's a yeah. You don't really think of it as a horror horror film, but it does but you have know, horror. He, he was actually agreeing. He was agreeing with Joe's original point. So Joe's oh. made a point that Callum's agreed with. Oh, ah, right. With. I see. Presumably, to, to, so, to, do you agree with Callum's point? I'm in agreement all around. And then Joe from House of Cinema, who is the guest on the last episode, sent me an email saying that he thought Mank was absolutely fantastic and enjoyed it way more than he thought he would, and he probably would squeeze it into his top five somewhere for sure. Wow. So that's, that's, that's an wrong. interesting take where it sort of. <laughs> Yeah, for me, it's, it's bottom third, and so it's interesting that it would be in the top five for Joe. Yeah, but if, hey, everyone's Could got an opinion, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that about wraps it up for here. Oh, is that it? We're done. Uh, Good. <laughs> yes, Sam, Hugh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, yeah. What are you working on right now? You know, you just talked about your, your just released episode, uh, which is that what? It's uh, your North American listeners will most know it as Pirate Radio, but in the UK it was the boat that rocked. Uh, so it comes out, it'll be out when this comes out. Um, so we'll see if Hugh liked that, the uh, 2009 Richard Curtis comedy. And then next week, uh, I will be for the first time watching, um, I nearly said Chitty Chitty Bang Bang then, it's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, the Shane Black, oh, uh, Val Kilmer, RDJ. Great Christmas movie. Christmas. Well, that's it, we, we, I wanted to watch it last year, but we do, we're do. we going to do one Christmas movie a year. Yeah. Last year was It's a Wonderful Life, Hugh was watching that for the first time. And uh, this year, finally going to watch uh, Finally going to watch it. I've, I've not seen it yet. I'm intrigued. I'm looking forward to it. Sam. I love that movie. So I'm very excited to hear you guys talk about that Sam, movie. if yeah. people wanted to get us on like social media, where could they find us? We are, good, good segue here. And we are at Please Watch Pod. Oh, no, yes, we are. Sam, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> Dakota, when you say what are you working on, my fourth drink. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's, it's a British invasion again. We, we come in, we swear, we yeah. uh, drink, yeah. and we snort. Uh, yeah, so uh, we're on, we're on, we're mostly on Twitter. Mostly. But I think we met Dakota through Reddit. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah, you you posted asking for guests or something that's like right. that. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, you were. Yeah, uh, and you answered the clarion call, didn't you? Kim, Kim. Because he's so, he's good Canadian. He's so nice. He's like, well, I've got to. He doesn't really. He doesn't even <laughs> like us. He's just like, oh well, it's just a politeness, isn't it? <laughs> But no, it's been so much, so much fun. On it. I am such a big fan of the show, uh, Dakota, and, and long may it continue. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. I, I really do appreciate the both of you coming on. And yes, everyone, please check out. Please watch this. It's a, a fantastic show, and I'm very excited. I, I, to I listen can to confirm Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Dakota's Bang. point. It is a fantastic. I'll show. give some feedback. Yeah, on that, that. that's yeah. a fantastic show. <laughs> you should t- tell friends. Tell 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 strangers. Tell your neighbours. <laughs> tell your mailman. <laughs> Well, awesome. Thank you so much, gentlemen. You're welcome. Uh, and Thank this you. will not be the last time that you are on. Oh, no. Fantastic. <laughs> really cute. High five. Yes. <laughs> Podcast high five. <laughs> Thanks, to go. We look forward yeah, to it. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Once again, thank you to Sam and Hugh from Please Watch This for coming on the show. 
make sure you check them out. There's going to be links in the show notes for you to follow the show. And of course, the two episodes that I guested on their show as well. So please listen to all of that. Also, thank you so much for listening to the show. If you have your own thoughts on Citizen Kane and, and Mank, please send me an email, contrazoompot at gmail.com, and I'll read it on a future episode. And please make sure you follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. I want to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Thank you to Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show. Please visit ContraZoomPod.com for all your CZP needs and bookmark it as I'll always be adding lots of cool stuff there over time. And if you can rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, that will be a huge help. Thank you so much for listening. Bye! Bye.